0: was this like rapid iterative um learning with within our sprint leaders community um which is amazing to see because it was like um everyone's really open with yeah. things like yeah. i totally failed and this completely <laughs> bombed right which
1: don't do this yeah yeah
0: don't do that um, and a lot of what i've you know learned from in my time doing this is from all those really big failures um, And that's how I've like helped other people is to say, you know, (laughs) you need to make sure you have these people represented in the room, or you need to make sure you have these conversations because I know what happens when you don't because I've been there. Well,
1: Kai, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'm so excited to have you here. I wanna just throw it straight to you. Why don't you give a little bit of background about yourself and um, share your story, how you got into this crazy world of of product and UX.
0: Um, Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Um, uh, You know, it's always hard to know how far back to go.
1: Fair, (laughs) I I understand.
0: I started my career um, right out of undergrad. And um, the first thing I did was start a design studio. Not necessarily advised. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, But I was very lucky because um, I had uh, um, a lot of great examples to follow. And it was a time um, when people were really interested in working with young people. Um, Mm -hmm. So I started uh, my studio focused on um, building uh, integrated branding and communications uh, programs for. Um, tech startups in Silicon Valley. So a lot of digital solutions, websites and things like CD-ROMs and um, you know, emerging technology at the time, right. uh, which is part of why people were willing to take a, a bit of a gamble on us um, since nobody really knew how to do it and we were all kind of learning together. Um, so that is where I got my start um, and did that for about five years, ran my own studio, built my own design practice. Um, At the time, I was more of the managing partner. Um, I did, uh, you know, business development. I, you know, did all the hiring and resourcing and I had a design partner who was um, straight out of UCLA with a traditional graphic design background. Um, And then we had a developer engineer who was our our other partner. So um, uh, that was an amazing experience. I learned a lot. Hard
1: but good, right? Yeah. Hard but good. <laughs> yep.
0: And um, yeah, I think that that's really where I um, learned a lot of um, to wear a lot of different hats. I you know, learned to code HTML like in the middle of the night in order to me- meet a deadline for my clients yep. because our uh, engineer didn't show up. Um, those kind of things that happen. <laughs> and, um, and then from there, it, you know, it's been an interesting journey. Um, I'm also a bit of an artist. So I studied um, printmaking in undergrad as well as anthropology. And um, I've always wanted to balance that creative um, that creative work with my design and, and, and product work. So I took some time off and studied photography and, um, and more printmaking before I went on from there to um, Yahoo, where I spent a long time. Um, working on the front page Um, and uh, that was a real incredible experience as well for the time period Um, and from there I I went to Google so that's kind of the step by step lots of turns and twists Um, I also while I was at Yahoo I got my master's um, in design at the California College of the Arts in San Francisco and it was a very interesting um, move for me because I was looking to Get back to some more of that creative artistic roots um, by, uh, you know, unifying, as you might say, your different creative sides from, you know, interaction design and um, uh, more traditional fine arts practice um, and learned a lot through that about what really matters to me, which um, was, uh, is and continues to be sustainability and mm. um, and climate change. Um, and it's funny thinking back to 2008 when I was doing that, you um, uh, degree I focus my thesis on um, uh, behavioral change in relationship to resource consumption and what you know design could do in this space um, and since then it's been about 10 years 10 20 wait a minute 21 13 years now <laughs> right. you know, it's, it's been interesting to see what kind of opportunities there are for people with a background like myself to actually um, you know, contribute to positive change in the, um, you know, industry of sustainability. So I continue to, to try to find places where I can contribute.
1: Oh, yeah. I was going to ask, how does that over intersect with your role, your day-to-day role, or how do you, how do, I guess, what does your day look like, um, both in your current role and how that interacts with sustainability? I'm, yeah, I'm curious how those worlds collide.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Not very much at the moment. (laughs) So that's kind of one of those things where I've been like, yeah, um, I uh, I did a, a project earlier in 2020 um, to with some yeah. uh, with some partners focused on um, uh, recycling, and I, I look for those volunteer opportunities. I've worked with the Google uh, for Startups accelerator that um, you know helps uh, sustainability startups. I've done those yeah. kind of things through my work um, at Google and through Google.org whenever there's a chance.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, but my day to day, which is interesting to to sort of think about um is i lead a um a program called ux methods and practice um, under a centralized team that supports the function of ux across google so i'm not on a product team
1: that's great um, but i mean but the outpour yeah. is that i assume that's being used on product teams but i'm curious what is what does that look like I mean, google's such a large organization but what is this this methods and practice, um, focus look like.
0: Yeah. So it's very unique and it's not representative of like most UX design managers or, or, um, uh, designers at, at Google. Um, yeah. and it's, uh, what's really great about it is I get to have this kind of meta perspective mm-hmm. on, um, how we do design at Google and how we collaborate and innovate. So, I get to work with all the different product teams, talk to people, people who work on Gmail or people who work on maps and um, look for what are the practices that are working really well? um, What are the methods that they're using to achieve um, alignment or cross-functional collaboration? Design Sprints is one of them. Um, And I, Create resources and um, training programs, and help people to get access to those practices um, and those skills that will enable them to um, not have to reinvent the wheel. Right. So uh-huh. when they, uh, you know, realize that they need to um, define a vision, right, like a two to four year vision for their product team, they want to know, you know, how do I go about, you know, what's a good way to do that. Um, certainly they could figure it out themselves as these really incredible product leaders that we have at Google, people have these skills, but, um, they want to know what has worked and what hasn't worked and Mm. how am I going to be most efficient with my time? And so I'll collect examples from different people, different teams, and then aggregate the best of them or try out and develop. Like I did, uh, last year before last, um, a whole series of vision sprints, looking at like, what does a vision sprint model look like? So Mm -hmm. that when somebody needs to do this work, they have, you know, a toolkit available to them, they they can go and like, just, you know, customize it for their needs, but they're enabled and equipped to do that work really
1: well. That sounds incredible because I mean, obviously there are some luxuries within such a large organization that that people have access to that because so well, even some of the large organizations we work with, they're still like grabbing, they're trying to figure out why I know, I know somebody's probably written a book about this. I know somebody's, I saw a YouTube video about it, or somebody from a, came from a different company and say, we used to do this, but I don't know. I don't know where it's documented anywhere. You get to be that person for your organization. That's actually pulling that together to say, I've heard about this, but let's see what it looks like for us. Or this team over here is using it. Let's pull it in and actually kind of formalize it and and share it with the rest of the organization. Am I understanding that right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we basically create, offer the platform for what I like to think of as like the, um, uh, the foundation of being a learning organization. So this last year with having to pivot to remote and running, you know, design sprints or collaboration, um, workshops, which we used to do in person now doing all virtually, um, we were able to get close to 60% of our sprint leaders transition to remote facilitation within three months by, and to be totally honest, like most of us were not running remote sessions, right. We it wasn't were,
1: normal before. So that wasn't no. a practice you were, you were. You didn't have that model already built in place. It was, you know, it, that was a change for you.
0: It was a fast change. And what we, we did was we basically looked to across the company to who was doing it, right? Who was mm. doing it well. And there were some experts and people who had been doing it for a while and people who I'd worked with. And I'd actually run one remote sprint Um, through one of these volunteer uh, efforts like uh, to define um, a vertical for uh, improving global literacy Um, and so we had people who done some of it and what we did was create a platform for sharing and testing and learning as we were going and so that was kind of like this three to four month period where every week somebody would come and say, okay, I just did this thing. (laughs) I just used this tool. I created all these templates. They're available for you. Go ahead and use them. And so it was this like rapid iterative um, learning within our sprint leaders community, um, which is amazing to see because it was like, um, everyone's really open with things like I totally failed and this completely bombed. Right. Which
1: don't do this. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Don't do that. Um, and a lot of what I've, you know, learned from in my time doing this is from all those really big failures. Um, and that's how I've like helped other people is to say, you know, you need to make sure you have these people represented in the room or you need to make sure you have these conversations because I know what happens when you don't because I've been there. Um, And so a lot of the way that we learn is by not being afraid to fail, not being afraid to share the failure or celebrate the failure. And um, I think that's one of the core values that I've learned at Google, um, which I think is really different from you know other previous places I've worked where um, it's encouraged that you're gonna share that learning. And then all of us can grow and learn from it um, rather than say hiding it or, you know what I mean? Like just being like, oh yeah, yeah, that was a mess up, I'll go on. Like you can actually create really useful foundational knowledge.
1: It's the difference between saying failure happens and we're okay with failure happening, but don't dwell on it, keep moving forward, you know uh, bias for action, let's just keep moving versus failure happens, wait a minute, everybody stop or at least everybody pay attention. We have something to share. Let's all kind of like analyze it and kind of ask the questions of what, what can we learn from this? What can we do with this information? Should this, um, should this make our next version of this look different? Um, rather than going, yeah, we failed. Oh, let's not dwell on it. Um, that's, there are very few organizations that do that well. I think a lot of organizations talk about failure as being acceptable but there's a difference when I think when, um, uh, the Reed Hastings new book, the no rules rules talks about Netflix kind of has this culture, right. And he, yeah. he refers to it as, um, I think they call it sunshining their failures. Mm-hmm. And it's literally just like, put a spotlight on it. I'm going to stand on stage. I'm going to tell you when I made a mistake that cost us $20 million or I'm, you know, whatever, because we're all going to learn together. Uh, that's, that's a gift to be in an organization that thinks that way.
0: Yeah, I think one of, it may not happen um, in all parts of the organization.
1: You know, and, and we're human beings, right? That's un, that's understandable.
0: But also Google's really, really big. If you, um, and I've been here 10 years. So yeah. um, I have those moments where I, I think, wow, you know, this is like a company of 10 companies.
1: And Yeah, yeah it's a good way to it, say it.
0: Yeah, and so what happens within one product area um, there's its own culture and mm-hmm. its own set of practices and um, I think what's really unique about this company is that in order for us to be successful we actually have to work across those product lines because our end users the people who you know come to Google for great products um, don't think about it as a com- you know 10 different companies they right. think I'm here for my experience i want to get my directions i want to find out where to go to this restaurant and i want to you know buy these shoes and um you know eat, text my friend i want to do all these things i want to have a, a video call um and those are integrated experiences but the teams that deliver those experiences don't work together all the time
1: right yeah, of course so Right.
0: to make a great experience for me as the end user they have to work together and yeah. that's where these um Uh, processes or practices, like ways of working, the more similar that we can work together, the the more aligned we can be on how we measure success in our products, Mm -hmm. uh, measure satisfaction, the better we can do at delivering a cohesive experience. So it's a really unique challenge uh, for a designer or an engineer or a product manager. Because you're not just working within your one space. You have to consider all the overlaps um, for, you know, really that customer who's coming to us for, you know, all the things that they want.
1: I'm curious because I find that there's a lot of parallels as we've been doing. We've been a business for about 12 years now, and I find there's a lot of parallels to large organizations and to how agencies work. And I'm curious if your background and kind of the services side of things where you have to adapt to clients' cultures. And basically what you're trying to do is to bring different ways of working, different things that matter, different social norms, different values sometimes, and say, yes, and we can do good work together. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And I, I, so one of our largest clients is a, is a global consultancy. And so, you know, they, they don't know what their left hand and the right hand don't always even know what each other are doing. But when we're serving different teams inside that organization, we have to learn how to say, hey, how do we have a common language? How do we have a shared tool set? Um, obviously, you're trying to create a united, a united user experience across your product suite. Um, what, how do we build? I think there's a lot of parallels. Do you, think, do you think that you pull from some of that service experiences from back in the day uh, when you start thinking about how those teams might cross over?
0: I think it's interesting being able to bring that outsider's perspective when you're you know trying to problem solve or innovate, push you know teams to think into the future, um, or even just to to address like uh, culture problems you have, right? Yeah, so um, having a pool of people that you can reach out to to say, can you come in and work with us? Um, I think it's actually a really big benefit that the company has built where um, we, we have the, the you know, the set of experts who understand, you know, the, the ecosystem that Google has built and, and ha- it, you know, operates within, but can also bring a little bit of that, um, the outsider perspective or I've recently been really, you um, uh, enthralled with Adam Grant's um, book Think Again, and he says like the beginner's mindset, um, because what we know is that humans have a tendency to um, uh, think they know what they know and not be open to, you know, new perspectives when they have just a little bit of knowledge about something. So, mm-hmm. if you have no knowledge, in some ways, you're in a much better place because you're a beginner and you can ask all these questions, um, and you can be open to new information. Um, I also like his whole point about a scientist's mindset,
1: which is. I like- loved that that perspective. Yeah. Yes, which is what we've all been saying for such a long time when we talked about validating and lean and agile. You know, like it's language we were already using, but it puts it in a more acceptable team or individual approach, which I really liked.
0: Yeah. The experimentation mindset, which we've talked about a lot, but there's something in the, in that language, um, I've always used a lot of scientific terms when I talk about design sprints and my research, um, uh, colleagues would say, oh, but it's that they're not real science experiments that you're running. You can't use that term, Kai, because it's, you're not controlling for variables and all these things. And I'm like, okay, but the point right. is you want to always be ready to be wrong, right? right? You want to not have to, oh, to to create a solution and, you know, dig into being right And the idea that you're gonna learn that scientist mindset is really critical, I think, in product development because um, you you waste a lot of time and money when you go out the door, um, you know, attached to your ideas, thinking you've solved the problem and not being open to hearing the feedback or, you know, learning. So I think it's, yeah, it's absolutely critical.
1: I'm curious then. As you get to see into so many different groups, into so many different arms of the organization, or as your facilitator working, you know, like you said, with so many different cultures, what are some things that you see that are common? What's What are some things that come up on a regular basis that either team, like that that idea, like even having a scientific or scientist mindset, What what are things that people have a hard time breaking away from or what's the biggest challenge that you face on a, a pretty consistent basis or there's a common theme?
0: Yeah, it can be hard, um, to, you know, identify the biggest or the, the most sure, common. Sure, sure.
1: Or, but, or, or uh, one, one common. One comes these, across. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I've, you know, over the past five years, I've worked with a lot of external companies, yeah. um, and, and more so necessary than within Google, but, one of the things that I see that we always struggle with is shared language. I think mm. you mentioned that earlier, um, and building this alignment and and even just shared understanding of what is the problem to solve. So, <laughs> right, and how to prioritize yeah. which problem to solve first. Yeah. Um, and so, when you go into these conversations, you know if you go into a conversation, oftentimes it's like, you know, we need a, a stronger relationship between a cross-functional relationship, right? Between our engineers and our UX and our product folks. Um, and if you have that foundation, then at least you have a place to start from, which yeah. is we know how to talk to each other. We have shared language.
1: And we can, and we can from- talk to someone who's not us, like that is, it doesn't look like us, maybe isn't using the same vocabulary as us, different things motivate them. We're able to have a respectful yet different conversation.
0: Yeah. And one of the tools that we've found really helpful at Google is, I mean, is thinking, I mean, user-centered design is always really helpful, right? Because there's always a user who, uh, and I know it's not the right, people will take issue with that word. So I'll say human, okay? There's always a human.
1: I don't get as offended about it, but I understand there's a purpose to that, but I get what you mean. User-centered design is important.
0: Yeah, well, what it does is it helps you align to um, who has, who's experiencing the problem right. and what are their needs and um, how do we solve for that? And how do we all align and agree that that's a thing that we need to solve for? And it gets complex in you know, enterprise spaces and non-consumer facing products. And we have lots of those at Google. Um, yeah. So in, often you kind of have to break that down into like who, cause there is a person in there somewhere. Right. So that's what I always We're building say.
1: technology like, for people.
0: Right. Yeah. And maybe it's five different people. Right. And that's fine too. Um, and, uh, but knowing who, you know, who are the players in the space. And then I think the most current conversations are the the things that we've, we've been really interested in this last year is, um, Who are we leaving out? Who are we not considering? Um, Who has, you know, who's been underrepresented or underserved? And those are a lot of the discussions I'm in right now, which is where if you are in a data-driven company where you want to, you're making all of your decisions based on data and you look at some of these underserved populations, those numbers don't represent accurately how much we should focus on them. And so you have to get into this conversation of the we are principles, right? And our principles are that we are here to, to serve everyone. Um, even if they are 0.01% of our population right now, you know, there's always the the space of we're not serving them, that's why they're not part of our user base. Yeah. Um, those yeah. kind of conversations. So it's interesting to look at how do we change. Even I mean, I think about our overall product development process because we have to, from start to finish, consider more than just, you know, who is the current person who's using our product? Um, who is the person right in front of us? Um, if we can get to that stage of considering our user, <laughs> first and foremost, right? That's like zero to one. Um, then from, from there onward, who are the people that we're not serving and what are the ways that we could be um, more inclusive? and. Um, uh, provide better experiences.
1: I want to camp there for just a second because I think this is an important conversation. It's one that a, a lot of the companies we're working with are thinking about, we're thinking about ourselves. I'm curious as you start to try to figure out how to, it's a, it's a really nuanced and complex conversation. And maybe we don't, I don't want to go too far down that path, but as you start to think about how you build those personas how you understand that it's not just a persona. There's even some risk there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how you approach the the value to the the business and the organization, which is a factor, right? Mm-hmm. And also the the value for what the business and organization who the future of who they could be serving. That is an interesting thing to balance um, um, well. I mean, it's the how do we not For example, and I don't mind talking a little bit about this. It's like the difference between saying we're going to have a non-biased conversation and one that is also intentionally trying to be diverse, which in some respects is biased because you actually are trying to, to focus on a a group that maybe isn't who's in front of us right now. Um, That is a, that's a challenge. That's a tension to, to hold. Um, I'm curious how, what are just some tips, I I guess just from a high level, a tips of how you've started to try to think through that with your, with your teams or conversations you've been a part of.
0: Yeah. Um, first I feel like I'm a beginner in the space. (laughs) I'm learning myself as we
1: all are. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and so I, I bring it up because I, I know it's really important. And when I, um, look at practice, I, see that we have to evolve our practice. Um, so I'm learning a lot about what the dimensions are that we need to consider and how we might go about um shifting that practice. Yeah. Um, we have an amazing woman at Google, Annie Jean-Baptiste, who wrote a book. Um, it's right here. Is it Building for Everyone? Um, which I highly recommend. Uh, yeah, yeah, Building yeah. for Everyone that people read. Um, and she is doing some incredible work at Google right now to Help um, product teams um, to design and create inclusive products. So she has checklists, and um, yeah. she has principles, and um, and there's, so there's a lot of things that she's doing. And part of what I've been looking at is how do I help people to embrace it at that practice level and think yeah. and think about it at each step in the process because. Um, And and she's working in many different ways, but we we fall into a trap if we see it as a checklist right before release. And I think we've fallen into that trap with a lot of other things as well. Accessibility. I was going to say there's a
1: lot of parallels to accessibility. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And we tend to think about accessibility as part of inclusion, but um, there's so many dimensions there when it comes to inclusion. So I think it is um, about asking the right questions at the right time. Um, and, uh, like you said, you know, maybe we've looked at it from like persona building at the beginning and, um, and. Um, you know, I, I worked on search for a long time. We don't have, pers- we didn't have personas on search because if you are, have a product at that scale, you're not, you're not thinking in that way. But yeah, some how do people- you say
1: everyone? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right?
0: right. My audience is everyone.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so then you start looking at um, goals and tasks and what are yeah. people trying to accomplish and what are their needs, which can get you out of that persona space, which I think tends to put you into a place of bias or stereotyping a lot. So mm-hmm. um, we look at critical user journeys, which is what does somebody want to accomplish with my product? Um, what's their goal? And what are the tasks that they are, you know, steps that they're taking to complete that task. Um, and how can we better serve them? And, um, you know, looking, looking at it in that kind of, you know, very methodical way, um, and that has been a really great tool for um, increasing that collaboration cross-functionally, helping you anchor to that, which is like, I'm using this product for this goal, and yeah. I really, this is what it takes for me to complete it, and, um, and what are the you know, metrics of success for that? Like how fast, or how happy am I, or how well did I do it, or how much confidence do I have in, in what I just did? Um, there are lots of different ways that you can you can think about it, but having a, um, a standard way of talking about it and, you know, talking about that experience and how you measure that experience for, for your users is really, really valuable.
1: Do you use, you talked about that kind of cr- critical user journey um, around this goal focused, or maybe we might refer to it as outcomes based, or we have some British friends that refer to it as the afters, um, which I, I just think is fancy. They said it with a British accent. So it makes me feel not as quite as smart, but the, um, as you think about those, that goals, and then you went back to saying, how can you all anchor around a problem when you're thinking about a cross-functional team? This is, this is a big challenge for, I think a lot of teams coming together. What are some, what are some tips? What are some actionable ways that you find work really well that people can find that common problem statement that they, they can, they can all kind of, whether it's dot, I don't could dot voting, I guess I don't what whatever, what's something really tactical or very, um, approachable for someone to go, man, that is, I'm struggling with that. For example, we have a little design sprint community here in Kansas city. And we were meeting just yesterday, just a handful of us because of COVID. And, uh, um, so we were on a zoom call and we were talking about, um, use case or a, a, taste, a case study words, case study. And somebody was saying they had done one of their first or second design sprints. And they said that the biggest thing that kind of threw them was that when they got past everybody agreeing on the problem they were going to go solve, they then went and created their own solutions,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, did it kind of through paper prototyping, and everybody went back and solved their own problems, anyways. Yeah. And And I said, honestly, yeah, yeah, they weren't completely aligned. Or I said, to be fair, that happens. People are going to like this. They may think that that's the only chance they get to get their, their voice heard is in that room. And so they're going to take the opportunity to prototype the thing they wouldn't been wanting to tell everybody about. How do you get people aligned around a problem? We say it a lot, but I think it's really hard to do.
0: Yeah. You know, I think it's, um, one of the things that we try to do before the sprint to a certain degree and the, um, I've struggled with a little bit, um, with the, the GV model where that whole first day is spent on problem framing. And, um, we tend to do more of that problem framing in advance, mostly because at a larger company, you can't can't get people to show up yeah. <laughs> until they've uh, all agreed yeah. what's the problem that they're gonna solve. So if you, you won't get them in the room for that, you know, uh, you won't get them for the five days and we, we have hard, you know, we don't do five days anyway, but um, yeah.
1: I don't know that anybody really does a full five days, but I get it. Yeah. yeah.
0: But so we've, we've been, we've got a lot, I should just say, we've been deep diving into this recently um, in terms of what are the different ways that you can go about doing that problem framing or their, that alignment. Once you get in the room, you're gonna learn a bunch of new things and you're probably gonna to have to align again, right? So sure. to say that you solve it beforehand, is it's, it, it's a little flippant to say that, so. It's um,
1: narrowing it at least. You're narrowing,
0: yeah. Um, and often what we, our sprint leaders, that's what we teach them to do is to scope um, mm. and to be very, very clear when we write our challenge statement for the sprint, um, you know, who, is our target uh, user that we're solving for? Who has the problem? Yep. Um, what is it that we're trying to solve You know, for? What is kind of like implicit in that, the, the, the goal? And sometimes we'll do even more narrowing function, which is starting to get to, to um, some level of solution. But in a lot of instances, especially in complex environments, you have stakeholders that have already said, you know what, this is gonna be an Android app. Right.
1: Yeah. You're going to solve this
0: problem with an Android app. So if you know what the platform is, you know what resource to do. If you go spend two days like exploring, how do we solve this problem in all these other ways um, you're going to waste your time because in the end that VP is like, I, I need an Android app for this. So I always I'm very realist about it where I say, like, are there expectations from your stakeholders yep. of, of the form that the solution is going to take? So starting to get to something very concrete. Um, and I have run sprints with, you know, very broad open, like we need to find a mechanism for how to communicate with teenagers. Right. And you're like, okay, let's explore how, how does anybody communicate? with? Yeah.
1: How do we solve world peace also? Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Communicating with teenagers. This was a, 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 a company that provides, helps kids invest in their college education. Cool. So they gain, um, points and rewards to schools. And so they build these relationships with colleges. I think it was called raise.me. It was a a startup I worked with. But we went in, we weren't saying it was going to be an Android app. We weren't saying it was going to be a website. Like we didn't know what the solution was. And that part of the challenge was we had to figure out how to reach teenagers. (laughs) And so that was really, really clear in the challenge statement. Um, But you could have scoped it another way, right? So we already all agreed going in. That the problem was really around this particular dimension. And that was what was going to be within scope for them. Um, yeah. And during the process, there were moments in time where we were people came up with ideas like, oh, we just need to get an AI or a chatbot who will, you know, be available all the time for the schools and blah, blah, blah. And the CEO was in the Sprint, which is amazing. Um, And he was like, we are not an AI company. (laughs) I'm just going to say no to that idea. Um, I'm not going to build a platform and I'm not going to do that because that's not my skill set. So let's pursue this other idea over here. Um, And so sometimes you get to those points where your ideation is all the way out here and you need somebody to say, this is the kind of company we're running. This is the skill set we have. And that idea does not align to our strategy. Um, which is fun because that's yeah. the fun, fun thing about sprints. You and
1: constraints it. are really helpful.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So doing some of that framing beforehand, yep. which can take the form of a short workshop. And mm-hmm. um, Jay Malone has a prob- problem framing workshop that he runs. Um, and we've uh, worked with him before and brought him in to share the uh, the toolkit that he has for that. So it's a, it's a good resource. Um, and... Or it can take the form of a lot of meetings with people and a shared doc, right?
1: Sure. <laughs> so I mean, it, sometimes it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. Right.
0: Yeah. And, but asking ha- taking the time
1: yeah. to ask
0: people for what their expectations on are taking the time to make sure you're digging up the research because what can happen is people think they know the problem that be mm. solved. And then when you pull up all the data, um, and you start saying, why? Well, why is this happening? You know, what's, why are 50% of our users dropping at this point? Um, then you'll start to understand that maybe there is another problem that right. you haven't recognized. So that's why I'm saying like, it isn't, it's not a, like you're not gonna solve it ahead of time. The sprint is gonna help you learn. And if you can bring enough data and people who you know can inform that conversation into yep. the context of the sprint, Um, you can learn a lot, but one of the other things that I do is I have people converge a little earlier rather than, so to your point about like, I'm going to go off for half a day and like create my beautiful solution and prototype, um, I converge people a little bit earlier. So after they've done their crazy eights, I bring them, you know, we bring them back together. We share those out and we start to merge earlier in the ideation so that, yeah. You're not off each in your own um, individual solutions, which um, there, are been, there are upsides and downsides to that, right? So, but we've always done it that way inside of Google um, and I've tried it both ways. And the thing that I've found is a lot of what you've said which is people go all the way down on a road um, or on a track with a, with a, figuring out all the details of the solution just we're not going to pursue or Mm -hmm. three people do the same one right
1: yeah and
0: then you're like okay we've got seven people here we've just reduced our pool of ideas because you've let these people go individually on mostly the same thing when you could have shared earlier expanded your set of ideas and had people recognize oh well why don't you pursue that one and i'll pursue this one and then you can maintain the five to seven or how many people you have um idea set that you can then decide from later. So I've struggled a little bit with, you know, um, how do you make sure you have enough convergence that um, you're um, aligned on the, you know, moving forward, but also, and for me, convergence at that point, when you think about the diverge converge.
1: Yep. I was thinking of double diamond right there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It actually gets you more ideas rather than yep. less which I think it seems counterintuitive mm-hmm. but from the sprints that I've run I've you know like I said I've run in both ways and that's what I've seen so um, you know those are things that I do to try to get people more aligned and then also to make sure you have a useful range of solutions
1: I'm curious how you're managing that remotely now because I I man it was so much easier when we would do a sprint or we'd, you know, workshop for any reason, and we'd be prototyping different ideas and we'd be diverging. And we we were trying to do as a facilitator, you can walk around the room and you can go, Hey, let me actually speak into that. This looks a lot like this other problem we were trying to solve. Can we, how do we, how can I bring you back? Right. Or I see what you're trying to do here, similar to theirs. Why don't you come up with a different, you know, like you can just do these little nudges. As a as a good facilitator, hopefully, that's all, It is much more difficult when I can't see what you're drawing on your piece of paper down below the camera there, or I we're not doing it on a shared Miro board or what I don't whatever. Yeah, how are you managing that remote? I'm free advice. I'm curious.
0: I know I can't say I have a solution for it. I think what we've experienced this year is like less creativity, less you yeah. know all of that, less inspiration. Everyone feels a little dragged down by the the um the tools, the digital tools. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing I have seen is once you do get it into your shared uh, canvas, like Miro or, or Mural,
1: yep. um,
0: as a facilitator, I actually can see more because I can see it all happening at once and I can see what people are doing. Uh-huh. So there's different cues that are there where in person, um, somebody might not want me hovering over their shoulder watching with their yeah, drawing. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. So, but they're not drawing in these tools necessarily, right. They're yeah. importing the, the sketches afterwards, but I have noticed with larger groups, it's kind of, it, you can see the progress that people are making, or you can see how, um, you know, how they're kind of coming together by being able to have that view across the board. Yeah. Um, and a That's lot. A good point. Yeah. So I think you can lean into that piece. You can also build in more, um, sharing time right and conversation time which I think time is always our problem with the remote because we burn out fast and Mm -hmm. we've also got our lives right and we're, we're not all in one place together so we have to. So balance. far,
1: we've gotten through this podcast without a kid walking into our room. So, all right, so, so, for me, that's a that's a win.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, my kids just went back to school, so.
1: <laughs> well, it just happens to be they got home thirty minutes ago. So I kept waiting for one of them to come up and be like, "I'm home." <laughs> so yeah, yeah exactly. I can I yeah, I mean, it's a reality. Like there are these mental sh- distractions that we just being in a physical space forced us to focus in a different way. Yet, like you said. Being in a digital space forces us to focus in a different way. I think it's just how, you know, will we let that hold us back, which I think is easy to to let happen, or will we get creative to work around it?
0: Yeah. And I think the tools will evolve. I mean, there's lots of interesting examples out there of, um, like spatial chat is one I haven't used, but I've used a couple Mm. other versions that look like it where you can have your side conversations. Um, and I'm, if Mural's not working on it, they're, they're crazy, but they should be working on getting that in video integration, yeah. um, and I, to my friends at mural, like I support you 100%. <laughs> um, but they, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> they, they're the opportunity to use that canvas and incorporate that spatial audio and video yep. is huge. We could really get over some of the humps with that. Um, so I think that's coming. I know people are working on it and yep once we get through these sort of early stages of technology evolving to meet this need, um, I think we'll be in a better place. I also think we're going to be remote for a long time. So I, I don't think it's ending when mm. I mean, people are back in the office in lots of parts of the world, but um,
1: yeah.
0: I think once we've built this capability, um, we're gonna be leaning on it more you know, in the future.
1: Even if it's, so I'm, um, and I want to wrap up here and be respectful of your time. We're, we're getting ready to quote unquote, go back. Um, we've been remote for the, the last year. We're a small team. We're about 50 people. And I would say in Kansas city proper, we have about 90% of us are here. Then we have district. we over the last year. We've been like, well, there's no reason to not hire people anywhere. Yeah. So we've been hiring people in, uh, the West coast, the East coast, up North, um, and Phoenix, et cetera. And, um, what we're thinking about now is the discrepancy that starts to happen when you have a group of people that feels like they have special preference when they're in the office, mixing with the folks that are fully remote. We already had a little bit of that before, and we just did it because you made it work, but now that everybody's been on a equal footing and a kind of equal access mindset, seeing if you're in Boulder, which we have a a designer in Boulder, if he's, in, if he's in Boulder, he's not planning to move to Kansas anytime soon. And all of a sudden he sees these group of people that are in the office, yet he's the only one on a screen. How does collaboration look when it's in a hybrid? And so we're, we're having a lot of conversations about that. And our clients are asking the same things. How, how might we collaborate with you and ourselves? Some of us are remote. Some of us aren't, it's going to be the next, I think the next 18 months are going to be really interesting to see what, hybrid or fully remote or some combination of the both is it looks like um, and how it changes how we get creative
0: yeah we're gonna have to get creative with it
1: (laughs) yeah of course because
0: it's um it's really hard that's one of the things for sure because you you don't have um uh an equitable experience right not each person doesn't have the same level uh the same um uh, access to the information and We've look, we're looking at it, of course, at Google as well. And I can there, imagine there are days where I'm, I'm like, you know what, let's just all just stay <laughs> at let's our, save a our bunch money. squares. Yeah,
1: yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> in
0: our little squares with our shared canvas. And but I I do think it's, you know, we have to constantly evolve and we have to look forward. And that's what this is, is mm-hmm. um this last year has been a time where we've we've gotten to um you know lean into the creativity in you know, in this, at this meta perspective yep. of how do we work well together and how do we learn and how do we grow? And, um, and that's really exciting to see, you know, I, I've enjoyed in a lot of ways, being able to, to push, you know, push the practice and yeah. the way that we think. So it opens up a lot of accessibility globally for people and who maybe weren't, you know, able to participate. hundred so percent seen huge benefits there, um, especially for a global company, right? Um, Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Voices that couldn't be heard or parents who couldn't travel, you know, those kind of things now can be part of those conversations. So there's some benefits.
1: There's, I mean, there's always a a blessings and curses, no matter how you look at the situation. Well, I want to end with just a real quick, like what's something that you are, I mean, we've talked about a lot of things, whether it's, um, you know, being able to make sure that there's inclusion, may, whether it's you talking about um, uh, sustainability, um, what's something right now, as you look forward, given it's been the year that it's been, plus year plus that it's been, mm-hmm. given that we, we, we know that the future is unknown, what's something you're excited for in your practice, in our industry, um, in the world, maybe, I don't know, what's something that you're excited for right now?
0: Um, you mean aside from going to Hawaii?
1: (laughs) Well, come on. Um, let's, I mean, I think that's great. That's been a good episode and, um, (laughs) no,
0: no, I'm not going to Hawaii anytime soon, uh, but that's my future vision, uh, back, back to the beach and vacation, I think as we're all thinking, but, um, I am I'm definitely excited for um, the new ways that we're thinking about our practice. And, um, you know, I've sort of been hinting at it here where I think um, we've had a catalyst for, you know, changing the way we approach product development and design. And that's yeah. um, partially because of this last year. Um, but when we think about some of these things that we talked about with, you know, inclusion and um, uh, um, what, I, what I see is that we have to um, really recon- reconsider as a wrong word. Part of it is, um, I'm a little short on, on good vocabulary right now, okay. but um, uh, we have to have a new vision for what that practice looks like, what that product development um, uh, end-to-end process is, and what is good design and good product development um, should be uh, uh, inclusive of all of these principles and these ways Mm -hmm. of thinking. And when I think about collaboration and design sprints and what we've had to relearn or push ourselves forward on in the past year, Um, I see this opportunity as we, um, but he was the word dissect. We dissected this process and we start to to
1: the science. I like it,
0: pull it apart. Um, We see this opportunity to infuse that process with new ways of thinking. And so that's the piece that I'm really excited about, which is we're going to come through and we're going to move forward with ways of working that are um, going to, you know, help us to be better overall, and help us to put out, you know, better products into the world. Um, And it's going to take a while, like we're getting there and thinking about things like synchronous and asynchronous work. And, you know, the sprint, which we developed 10 years ago, got us to a certain place, which was really amazing. And for me, you know, changed the way that I worked. I think over the next 10 years, we're going to change multiple times. And we're going to find better and new ways to work that, um, bring in these, uh, new mindsets and, um, ways of being more inclusive.
1: I'm excited for that. I, but I also am a person that loves change. So, Mm -hmm. um, I think that, like we've said before, these, these constraints, these catalyst moments, these changes force us to be creative, which is go back to where you started, which is how do we merge this? design practice with this artistic mindset, like that's what we want. We want to be pushed to have to look at the world slightly different. Right. Um, I think you're, you're, you're in an awesome place to, to be doing that. So thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you for supporting the communities that you support. Um, it sounds like you're even in a lot more than I, even I was aware of. So, so thank you for being a part of that and for being a voice in, in that. And, um, Yeah. Thank you for coming on the show. Spending some time with me today. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun.
1: This episode of People of Product was produced by Larissa McCarty with support from Gaddy Caton, Julie Branson, and Alexa Alfonso. Our hosts are George Brooks and Daniel Linhart. People of Product is brought to you by Crema, a digital product agency. We believe that creativity, technology, and culture can help individuals and organizations thrive. Learn more at Crema.us.